Hope you're doing well. We are in our second sermon in the series, uh, God With Us, our Christmas series. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I'll give you a quick review and then we'll jump in today. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up the Second Samuel chapter 6. Second Samuel chapter 6, that's where we're going to be today. Um, <clears throat> uh, last week, we were in the book of Exodus. The idea of what we're doing right now in, in this series is for three weeks, we're going to look at three Old Testament stories about the presence of God being with his people. And as we're looking at these three Old Testament stories about the presence of God being with his people, um, those three weeks will lead us into the fourth week, which will be on Christmas Eve, or the fourth sermon, I should say, which will be on Christmas Eve. And that will be, uh, obviously, the ultimate God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus himself. And so what we've been doing over the last uh, couple weeks, including today, is looking at stories from the Old Testament, seeing physical representations of something that's happening that tells us about the presence of God. So last week, we looked at the pillar uh, of cloud and the pillar of fire. And so that was for them, the uh, representation of God with them. <clears throat> and then as he was with them, we saw three things about God's presence being with them. Number one is that he was patient with them, patient in the timing of leading them, etc. that he also protected them, uh, the, because God was with them, giving this, this protection, they had protection as they went through the, the parting of the Red Sea, etc. But also for provision, there was things that God gave them as he provided. So he gave them patience, protection, and provision. So as we looked at that last week, hopefully um, all of us thought to ourselves, okay, the, the presence of God or God with us is something that I want in my life, especially as I look at it and I see that those are things that he does. He protects, he provides, he's always patient with me. Having him with me, knowing that he's going to be patient with me in my sin, but also if I'm not a believer, he's patient, not wanting me to perish, but also to come to repentance. He provides me, he's made the ultimate provision in Christ and he's protected me from myself and sin by giving us Christ, etc. So as we look at that, we realize, okay, I do want the presence of God. That is something that I want. I want to see and experience, as we're seeing in this particular sermon series, God with us. I want, to, I want that to be present in my life. So um, today, <clears throat> we're going to look at a different uh, physical representation of the presence of God in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 6. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in, and I'll, and I'll catch us all up to speed on how it's all going to look. But let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you've given it to us, and in it, you teach us and instruct us. You train us in righteousness that there's so much that we can apply from it into our lives, that we can know Christ, that we can be known by Christ. And more than anything, that our sins um, have been forgiven in Christ's perfect death on the cross for us. And by faith, we can be counted as righteous, completely forgiven. And I pray that the gospel would be the forefront, the most prevalent thing in this particular sermon. I pray for your help. I know that without your help, without your love and mercy uh, coming now, without your presence speaking through me, that uh, nothing I say, nothing I do um, is of any substance or is of any importance without Christ. And so come now, speak to me first and foremost, cause me to want to understand your presence more, be in your presence more, um, experience your presence more, and then all of us, Lord, do the hard work in our hearts where if there's places in our lives that we don't give over to you, places in our lives where we don't pursue you to know you more intimately, more deeply, to, to experience this God with us. There's places that we know that we're not, that you would come and show us and reveal those things to us and that we would 
in this Christmas season, deeply desire to have God with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I reviewed last week for us, um, showing us the grandness and the greatness of having God's God's presence with us. And today we're going to be looking at a different story. Um, The the story comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Samuel 6. It'll be uh, in kind of the beginning of the Bible. If you don't have one, look underneath you. There's a little blue and white one. It's in the Old Testament. That's the first half of the Bible. Keep that. It's all yours. Um, Take it home. If you have plenty and you just don't have one with you, take that home with you and give it away. Um, We buy those to be able to give away to people, so please have it. Um, So today, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 6. And in 2 Samuel 6, which we're going to get to in a little bit, I want to do a little bit of of groundwork, if you will. Um, But in this particular text, the ark... Uh, of the covenant is being brought into Jerusalem. So I want you to know what the ark is and what it represents and why it was built and how it was built and all these kinds of things. So if you have, if you want to, uh, a Bible, you can flip over to Exodus chapter 25. If you don't have, I'm going to read the whole thing and you can just listen. You can just listen. But early on uh, in Israel's history, God in Exodus chapter 25 told them that he wanted them to construct this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And he gave them specific directions on how to build it in Exodus chapter 25. Starting at verse 10, he goes, I want you to make an ark of acacia wood. That means really strong wood. Um, We watched uh, a documentary, my wife and I did, on the Ark of the Covenant. And they were saying that the acacia wood is so strong that if someone found it, it still might be in really good condition even today. Uh, It's that strong. So, you know... Maybe you want to drive or fly over to the Middle East and find it and, you know, be awesome. So anyway, the Ark of the Acacia Wood, it should be made of this. So it's super strong. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half shall be its breadth. And a cubit and a half shall be its height. So a cubit's about 18 inches. So two cubits, about a yardstick. It's a, it's a small box, if you will. It's not, it's not too huge. It's not this massive, huge thing. It's, it's a small box. Um, and it's to be made out of wood, acacia wood. Now here's where, it's gets, here's where it gets really detailed and kind of amazing. Um, verse 11, you shall overlay it with pure gold. In other words, as you build this box of wood, melt down gold and literally the entire box inside and out completely is going to be overlaid with gold. So there's gold, pure gold all over the inside, inside and outside completely. So now uh, it's a complete box of gold. And you shall make it on a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the side of it and two rings on the other side. Here you have your box. So two rings on this side, two rings on this side. And that's important because those little rings are going to hold the poles, which are going to also be gold. Watch this. Um, And it says in verse 13, you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark. Notice this. What are the poles for? To carry the ark by them. The ark is to always be transported by carrying them by the poles. Uh, The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. So you never take the poles out and kind of stick them over on the side. They always take there. And the reason why the poles are important, Numbers 4.15, the ark itself should never be touched. If you want to touch the ark, you get the pole. And it's only the Levites they carry by the pole. Otherwise, you touch it, it says in in, in Numbers 4.15, lest you die. So there's there's no touching allowed of this ark. And you shall put it into the ark of the testimony which I shall give you. And on the very top, it says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. So this is in the mercy seat. This is the idea of where the physical presence of God literally was. Like So right there in the mercy seat, right on top. And this is what it looked like. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. 
cubit and a half shall be its breadth, and you shall make two cherubim of gold. This is like angels. So on the top of the ark of the covenant, there's two angels, two cherubim, and they're, they're facing one another, and they're going to have wings. It says you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. So very, very detailed gold chiseled out to where it looks like two angels sitting right there on top. Um, make one cherub at one end, the other cherub on the other end, and one piece of the mercy seat. You shall make a cherubim on its ends. The cherubim shall spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces towards one another, toward the cherubim shall the faces be. You shall put the mercy seat at the top of the ark, and the ark you shall put in the testimony that I shall give you. So you see the, the idea of what it looks like. It's a box, about six, 36 inches wide. It's got two angels on top with cherubim, with lo- large wings kind of facing. And right there in the middle of that, that's called the mercy seat. That's where the idea of the, the very presence of God itself is there. So um, in the, in the, some of you might have this in English Standard Version Study Bible. It gives us a little bit of understanding about the Ark of Covenant, this, this golden box. It says that the Ark of the Covenant was the visible sign of the holy presence on God on high, whose real presence is high in the heavens. The focal point of God's actual presence um, was in this Ark of the Covenant, with, uh, is right there with his people is in this Ark of the Covenant. The Ark signified the Mosaic Covenant. That's, that's the Ten Commandments. It signified the Ten Commandments and was the symbol and location. It was the location of God's presence on earth. Now, that doesn't mean that God wasn't in heaven anymore, but if we're going to have a focal point in the Israelite life of the, of the presence of God, uh, God with us, It's going to be the ark. And it says the ark of the covenant was the only piece of furniture in the most holy place. And so in the temple, you've got kind of the entrance points. And then you get back, you go back to the very back, the holy of holies. No one's allowed in there except for a priest once a year on the day of atonement. And he's only allowed. That's where the ark of the covenant is. And it says no other furniture is allowed in there whatsoever. And one human would only go in there once per year. So this is the holiest of all all holy places. And the ark of the covenant was in there. And it was the only furniture of the ark, and its contents were kept hidden from view at all times. The ark was a wooden chest overlaid with pure gold, which we said. It also contained the two stone tablets of the testimony, which is the Ten Commandments. So inside the ark of the covenant, if, if you were to find it, you would literally find right now the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. So, I mean, you would be considerably awesome. Uh, and then it says, the author of Hebrews, in, in Hebrews 9, chapter 4, also adds that inside this box is the golden urn that held the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, his stick that, that budded a flower on top. So all that is in there. I mean, this is a huge, huge, important piece of, of work, if you will, uh, in the lives of Israel. And it represents for them the very place of, of God's presence. And so last week, as we looked at the cloud and fire, we saw that those things were the representative of the, of the presence of God, guiding them and directing them, protecting them, showing them patience. Here we have the ark, another idea of the, of the presence of God. And this presence of God, it was interesting because if you look at the Samuels, that's first and second Samuel, they had it and then they lost it and then they had to try to get it back a little bit. They didn't really try to get it back. It's just the people that had it didn't want it anymore and they just kind of sent it away. Um, and so it, it's all over the place uh, where they have it in first Samuel three and then in first Samuel four, the Philistines have it. The Philistines didn't want it anymore. They just kind of sent it away and then it sat in this, this one town for a little while and then a change of leadership happened from Saul who didn't think of the ark as maybe, I guess, that important, um, significant 
significantly later with a change of leadership. David wants it, but it's over in another area. And he wants, he's in Jerusalem. He wants the, the, Jerusalem to not just be the political center, which is where he was, but also the religious center. Therefore, we need the ark here. David's here, the king, and the ark. So it's the political center and the religious center all here in one city. And that, that's what David wants. And that's where we get here uh, at 2 Samuel 6, where David comes to this realization. I want everything right here because this is how God wants it. So in 2 Samuel 6, we're going to see in just a second what's going on there. But however, I want us to go back a little bit uh, into 1 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to see something about uh, the presence of God. So today's title, if you will, uh, is, you don't have to put up the first point yet. The, first, the title is The Five Notes Regarding the Practicing the Presence of God in Our Lives. So let me, let me give you a little understanding of what I mean. Last week, we talked about um, the presence of God. And as we talked about it in kind of big categories, patient protection provision, we looked at it in a way that says, okay, that's something that I want. I want God's presence in my life. And as we looked at it, we realized there's, there's definitely different applications um, for the people of Israel and us. So the presence of God for them, cloud by fire, by night, etc. For us, it's Jesus. Um, Jesus is the presence of God. And we looked at how Jesus can be the provider, the protector, and patient with us. And we said, yes, I want that. It's the same thing today. Here, as we're looking at five notes regarding the practice of the presence of God in our lives, we're going to see the way that Israel kind of interacts with the ark, the presence of God, if you will. And we don't have the same applications. I mean, the things that they did, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, hey, so go find the ark in the Middle East. And then you've got the presence of God with you because we have Christ, the Emmanuel, God with us. So we don't have to have an ark to have the presence of God. Instead, we have Christ. So any of the applications that we see and how Israel interacts with the ark are, we can take those and relate them with us to Jesus and not the ark. Does that make sense? Um, and so last week, as we talked about those kind of big three categories about God, hopefully the Holy Spirit stirred up within us a desire to have God's presence with us. So now, today, on this particular sermon, we're going to talk about some of the details of that. We're going to talk about what are some things that I need to know regarding the practice of me being in the presence of God, being with Him, literally having God with me, and experiencing this ongoing relationship with Him. What are some things I need to know about it? And they're right here in the text, all five of them. We certainly could say more than five, um, but the text is going to show us five. So... In 1 Samuel chapter 7, um, we, we know that the Philistines had taken the ark in war. And as they had the ark, uh, they didn't want it anymore. They're like, get, get rid of this thing. Let's, let's, we're done with it. Um, not working out for us. Um, just put it on a cart and send it out of here. So they, they literally get two cows and they, that had never, ever pulled anything. They get the two cows. They hook the ark up on a cart. And they put the ark on there and put some, some peace offerings, like just whatever, you know. Take it. We don't want it anymore. And they just send it on its way. Like, just go that direction. I think it'll be good. And so um, as that happens, as it goes towards them, and the cows are coming, literally, home, um, in verse Chapter 7, that just came to me. Um, verse 1, I wish I would have had that first service. Anyway, uh, and the men, here it is. So we're in chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Um, as the cows are going, there's a city called Kiriath-Jerim where the cows come up to. And so here, here it is. Um, and the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark. So here comes the ark with the cows. And we're like, okay, we want this. Um, this is what we want. 
Um, but it's not Jerusalem. It's Kiris Jerim, different city. And it says, the men of Kiris Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer. So somebody has to be um, consecrated to even be in the presence of the ark and interact with it. That's going to be Eliezer. And as they took the ark, they, they said, yes, this is what we want. From that day, the ark was lodged there at Kiris Jerim. And a long time passed, some 20 years, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And so now, uh, the Philistines didn't want anymore, but basically, here comes the presence of the Lord into this particular area of Kirith Jerim. And as they bring in the ark, the presence of the Lord is there. And then they realize that something happens in their minds. It, it, it's, it's amazing, right? It's just amazing. The presence of the Lord comes into their lives, the ark comes into their lives, and all of a sudden, just the presence of God starts revealing things into their heart starts revealing things that they need to be different. Watch. So as soon as the ark comes in, Samuel, in verse 3, Samuel's kind of the leader of Israel at the time. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, all right, the ark's coming here. I see something happen. If you're going to return to the Lord with all your heart, what, what, what caused that? What was the impetus of wanting them to now return to the Lord with all their heart? The, whole, the presence of God had come in. The ark had come in. So the presence of God is there. All of a sudden, they want to turn and come back to the Lord. You can see there, uh, it says in the very end of verse 2, the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So they're, they're going after the Lord with weeping and with tears, verse 3. And Samuel saw this and he says, To all the house of Israel, if you're going to return to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart towards the Lord. And serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals. Put away the Ashtaroth. And they served the Lord only. Without the presence of the Lord in their lives, their hearts turned to idols. As soon as the presence of the Lord came back, literally the ark comes back, all of a sudden their hearts and minds are opened up to this reality, which is my heart is an idol factory. This is what Calvin says. He points out to us that our hearts are just idle factories. As soon as we see something and we realize that we love it and we try to put it to death by the power of the Spirit and no more, is that an idol in our life? Our, our heart has already created and manufactured another idol that we're in, in love with. And as soon as we put that away, we see another. Our hearts are just idle factories. And that truth had been revealed to these people. Without the presence of God, they had no idea. As soon as the presence of God came into their life, they realized we're worshiping idols. Literal idols, you know, like little, little, little deals. Uh, who knows how big they were? So they're literally worshiping idols. And Samuel sees that and he says, if you're going to return to the Lord with all your heart, put away the false gods. Put away the foreign idols. And then if you do that, they, they put away and it says they served the Lord only. So here's the first note. It's lengthy maybe, wordy. Uh, it's all on the screen. You can write it down. Um, the promise of God with us. The promise of God's presence with us then shows us something. Whenever we are encountering, whenever we are experiencing God with us, experiencing the, the joy of getting to be in the presence of God and know him and be intimately known by him, then it should cause us then, whenever we're going to, and I have this, these words, return, pursue, so depending on where you are, maybe you're kind of a, uh, someone that's been walking with Christ, but you're coming back to Jesus, and it's been a while since you've 
walked with God or experienced the presence of God or really um, been in a deep relationship with God. So you're returning. This is the same language they use here. If you're going to return, you've, you've had more idols in your heart lately than you should have. Or perhaps you're walking with God and you just need, you know that you need to pursue him even more deeply. So the promise of God with us should cause us either to return or to pursue after the Lord with all of our heart, as it says, with all of your heart and put away all of our idols to serve him only. Idols, when put next to Jesus, fail miserably as God's. Fail miserably. There's no idol in your life when you put up next to Jesus is going to ever measure up to bringing you ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate happiness. It will fail miserably. So as you as these people find yourself more into the presence, and and the Christmas season surely does this. We're thinking about the idea of the incarnation, God becoming man, and we're hopefully not being distracted by, you know, Walmart and Target and Amazon trying to vie for our money, but instead we're thinking on the advent. God came, and he became a man, and he came for a purpose. He came to die for my sins. All my sins are forgiven. Oh, that I can now be in his presence and know him. I never could. And people before this that didn't know him never could be in his presence. But now, because of Jesus, we have the ability to be in his presence. Therefore, I want to pursue him with all my heart, putting away idols. Now, I know you don't worship little six-inch figures like they did. You don't have to put away a Baal or Ashtaroth, right? But I think you're keenly aware keenly aware of the idols of your own heart. And he's telling you here, if we're going to practice the presence of God, like we talked about last week, those great things about it, if we're going to practice it, then our hearts need to reflect on the idols of our own heart and put those things away. I don't, I don't know what your idols are. It could be, if I just have this relationship, once I get that, then God's going to do everything for me. And he's saying, that might be a good thing. It might be a bad thing. But it might be a good thing. But that cannot be the thing. Jesus is the ultimate thing. No idols before me. Or if I can just have that, that thing in my, my, that house, that car, that, that next child, that first child, that what, whatever. These things aren't bad things. But when they become ultimate, they become your idol. And you do, it becomes your savior. I can only finally be saved if I have that. And Jesus is no longer your savior. And so what we see here is that we're going to practice the presence, really experience God with us. Any and all idols have to take a back seat because all idols fail miserably when compared to Christ. They will never save you, though they might be good. So here's the application as we look at this. I want you to think more seriously then about the presence of God in your life. What is the last month, six months, Um, If you think about the practice of experiencing and being in the presence of God in your life, what does that look like? How has that been? What does it make you feel like as as you think about your presence, practicing the presence of God? We're going to talk about the subjectivity of that phrase, practicing the presence of God. I'm going to come to that in just a second. But as you pursue Jesus in your own life, what does it feel like? Do you feel conviction because you don't feel like it's happening? Or do you feel satisfaction like I know him? This is what I want you to do. I want you to, the Lord wants you to do. Here's what I think. The Lord wants you to cultivate 
pursuing the Lord in your life. That's what he wants. He wants you to cultivate a lifestyle to where you are pursuing that whenever it's, he's in your life, all of a sudden, all the idols seem meaningless and you want to throw all those things away and return to the Lord with all your heart and serve him. As it says in verse four, they serve the Lord only, Yahweh only. So that's the first thing. This is what it looks like. It looks like throwing away every single idol away in your life that comes for your attention. Now here's where it gets interesting because you're saying, Fudd, um, we're in 1 Samuel 7 and we're supposed to be in 2 Samuel 6. Please tell me you're not going to preach the rest of the 31 chapters of Samuel first and then do the other five. I'm not because here, I don't have to. Here's the thing. There's a slight mentioning of the word ark in 1 Samuel 14 where Saul thinks, oh, that ark seems important. Uh, mention it, that's it. But from 1 Samuel 14, all the way through 1 Samuel 31, all the way from 2 Samuel 1 through 5, you know what word isn't in the scriptures? Ark. That seems pretty big, being that it's the very presence of God. It seems to be monumental. Monumental. So much so that it screams, I think, silently, screams out to us the second note regarding practicing the presence of the Lord which is this. There is a glaring absence of the ark in the lives of the people. It gets to Kiriath-Jerim or whatever the name of that city is, and then they forget about it. It doesn't come to Jerusalem. Saul doesn't seem to be concerned about it, and even David, when he becomes king for a little while, until we get to 2 Samuel 6. So here's the second point. If experiencing the presence of God is not continually cultivated in our lives... It can be easily forgotten, and God is not a part of your life. That's what happens right here. There's no mention of the ark, except for one, from 1 Samuel 7 all the way to 2 Samuel 6. Multiple years have passed. And because of poor leadership of Saul, who we know later isn't that good of a king, God's presence wasn't, um, God's presence wasn't important to them, it wasn't around them, and we soon see that they're falling off the rails, if you will. So I want you to think about this then. The application for us then is not just a one-time declaration of, God, I want you forever, and that's it, and I'm coming after you. Yeah, and then you don't. But instead, pursuing this presence of God, knowing him intimately, being with him deeply, is an all-day, everyday thinking on God. It is a yearning, continual yearning for his presence. This is an ongoing, experiencing the sweetness of being known by God and ongoing experience of knowing the sweetness of knowing God. This is an everyday, constant, continual cultivating of being and knowing Christ, being with and knowing Christ. So uh, in this particular uh, text, I'm, or, or point, I'm saying experiencing or practicing the presence of God. And you're saying, can we, can we, can we get a little more objective, Fudd? This is such a subjective way to say uh, what I think you're saying. In, in other words, knowing Christ, being with Christ, experiencing Christ, seems like you're just saying, read your Bible and pray. So why don't we just be a little more objective, Fudd, and stop being so subjective? Why is it that you're saying practicing the presence? I understand here that there's a, there's a definite level of subjectivity in the way that I'm saying it. 
but I can't necessarily just go objective and say, okay, that means reading 10 pages a day of the Bible and praying 30 minutes. Because you and I both know that if you read 10 pages and pray 30 minutes and somebody else reads five and practices five, that we know very well this particular person could definitely be practicing the presence of the Lord at a much deeper level than the legalist over here that's doing it. So it's going to be subjective. I can't say that there's definite ways to measure this. But what I can say is, if you're around two people and one is pursuing Christ with everything he knows and one's not, there's an definite difference on the ongoing joy and the ongoing morality and the ongoing life, uh, the ongoing uh, evangelism, the ongoing repentance, the ongoing being and experiencing Christ. There's just an, a definite difference between the two. Can, you, can I measure that? And how far that's going to go in your life versus how far it's going to go in your life versus how far it's going to go? I can't measure that. It's not my job. It's the Lord's. But what I can say is this. You need to be in experiencing an everyday, ongoing, continual yearning and practicing and being in the presence of the Lord. Tozer says something this way. He's talking about the presence of the Lord. And so there's this, there's this trait of God or characteristic of God called omnipresence, which means he's everywhere. And he says, the omnipresence of the Lord is one thing. So we're talking about experiencing the presence of the Lord. We're not ex- talking about experiencing the omnipresence of the Lord. Like, well, he's everywhere, you know. God's everywhere. He's, he's in this room. He's outside. So I'm always experiencing the presence of God. What are you talking about, Fudd? Um, he says, the omnipresence of the Lord is one thing. It is a solemn fact necessary to his perfection. The manifest presence of God is another thing altogether. And from that presence, I think most of us, he goes, we have fled like Adam to hide among the trees in the garden. That when we're around it, we don't know what to do with it. And so the most comfortable thing is to run over into the tree and hide and say, this is too much for me. I enjoy my life too much. I enjoy how I can do what I want, when I want, say what I want, do what I want, go where I want. And when I'm in this manifest presence, it seems to be that you call the shots more. It seems to be that you lead me into righteousness. It seems to be that I become a better wife. I become a better husband. I become a better father. And that's just too hard. And so I'm fleeing to the trees and hiding out. This is, this is what the manifest presence of the Lord in your life does. And I'm saying, those things aren't things to run from. Those things are beautiful. Those things are amazing. Being in the presence of God, reminding me of who I am in Christ, that I am 100% forgiven, preaching that great gospel to myself continually. Why would I not want to be there? Don't be like the Israelites that you think you finally have it, and then all of a sudden you're like, good, we got the ark. All right, what's next? Instead, it needs to be with you. I mean, the ark of the covenant, the very presence of God, remained in Kiriath-Jerim forever. For, not forever, for a long time. It wasn't until a change of leadership, proper leadership, that it decides, we're, we're moving over to 2 Samuel 6 now. Under proper leadership, the ark, the very presence of God was understood now to be important and a vital missing piece in the everyday life of Israel. David understands that this is a vital, vital, the presence of God is a vital missing piece right now within the people of God. And I would submit to you, the presence of God is a vital piece in your life. If it's missing, it needs to be there. 
And it's the same for us. And so therefore, David says, we got to go get the ark. And we got to bring it here. Now, verse 1, chapter 6. David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from, uh, from people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up. So they went to Baal Judah. You're saying, wait, Fudd, it was Kiriath Jerim. I know. It had been so long, the city names changed. That's how long. Uh, Now it's called Baal Judah. To bring up from there, Baal Judah, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sit enthroned on the cherubim. So David has this magical, amazing, you know, great idea. Hey, you know what? People of God probably should have the presence of God with us. What do you think? I mean, this is just, this is rocket science, right? This is obvious. The people of God should be continually having the presence of God with them. Now, if you're in Christ, because we're in Christ, we have God himself in us. So we, we have this presence of God with us, but we certainly can say God with us in Christ can still be cultivated and he can be known more deeply. We can be known by him more intimately. We can pre- preach the gospel to ourselves. We can tell others. And so similarly, we want to have the presence of God in our own life. And so David has this kind of aha moment, which is, what are we doing? We've got to go get the ark. So, verse 3, they went and got it. They carried the ark of God on a new cart, uh, because remember, the old one was, dead, was gone. That cart just kind of pulled up into uh, Eliezer, or Abinadab's house, and they were so happy to have it. They took the cart, they destroyed the cart, made fire, they killed the cows, sacrificed the cows, and like, we got the ark. So, obviously, that cart's gone. Um, so, uh, it says, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the cart uh, with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. So here it is. David has this magical, huge, big idea, aha moment. We need the presence of God here in Jerusalem. Let's go get it. They go over to Abinadab's house. It's been here, I mean, who knows how long. He's got Uzzah and Ahio helping. They're like, all right, the cart's going. We're, we're, we're finally getting it where it belongs, with the people of God. And so what's the response they have? Well, it's right there in verse uh, next five. David and all the house of Israel were making merry. I, I'm not sure if you've ever physically made merry. If you've ever just decided that you're just going to go for it, you don't care who's watching, and you're going to make merry. But I imagine this involves a lot of movement. I, that, that's, that's just, I can't imagine that they're making merry by saying, mm, that's awesome, it's so good, this is so good, just so pumped. It's awesome. See in my face? I'm sighted. I'm sighted. Like, you can see that they're thinking, <laughs> God's presence is coming back to Jerusalem. And so we're going to, we're going to go all out here. Make Mary. Woo! Going crazy, right? So David is pumped. He's the leader, and he's excited that, that, the ha- that the house of God is going to have the presence of God. They're making Mary before the Lord. They brought the whole uh, marching band. They have the, it says they're making Mary with songs, the lyres, the harps, the tambourines, the castanets, the cymbals. They're just going all out. Everything's going awesome. And they come up to this little area where there's maybe there's a little bit of uh, roughness in the road, uh, and so the oxen stumble. Watch this. Um, verse 6, and when they came up to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, put out his hand to the ark of God to took hold of it for because the oxen stumbled. We don't want the big cart or, or the big ark falling down on the ground and going into a thousand pieces. Thanks, Uzzah. Good thinking. Uh, the oxen stumbled. You catch that thing before it falls. Well, not so good. Verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against who? Uzzah. Wait a second. I thought he's the good guy. 
And he struck him down there because of his error. And he died right there beside the ark of God. Dead. Abedinadab's son Uzzah, done. Numbers 4.15. No one touches the ark. No one. I will. What does that mean then? I mean, he seems like he's doing a good thing. Right motivation. Don't want this to fall and destroy. Keep it from falling. And he kills him? That doesn't make sense to me. Well, look. He struck down God. I'm sorry. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck down him there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Here's what's going on. Go back over to verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Wait a second. What? What are you doing transporting the ark on a cart? Say it this way. Where did you get the idea of moving the cart, the ark around on a cart? Because Exodus 25 told us how you're supposed to transport it. Who, whom, one of those two, are you looking at trying to get your ideas on how to transport the, the ark? Because the Lord has instructed us on how it's supposed to be transported. Well, look over with me. First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 4. It says the Philistines fought. They beat Israel. They were defeated. 411, the ark of God was captured. Five, uh, they put the ark in, in the temple of Dagon. Uh, they put it there. They put the ark there. Dagon was their awesome God they thought was awesome. The next morning they come, Dagon's down on the floor. And the ark's still sitting there like, oh, what's going on? We need to pick up old Dagon, poor guy. And the next day they come back, bang, Dagon's down again. Head's cut off, arms are cut off. And the, the, it's being made known. Your idols are miserably failing in the presence of God. And they're like, well, we love Dagon. Maybe this thing over here is bad. We need to get rid of it. Moron, right? But they don't know. Verse 6, they said, verse 6 in chapter 5, it says, The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Let's get rid of it. We're going to take it over to uh, Gath. And so it says in verse 7, they sent uh, the Philistines uh, to do with the ark. They put it on the ark of God to Gath. And then it was sent that city into a panic. There's tumors everywhere. And they're like, we don't want this thing. Let's give it over to Ekron. Ekron, same thing. And over and over. And the hand of the heavy, uh, the, the, the Lord's hand is heavy on them. Tumors go over there. They all freak out. So everywhere the ark's going, things are going bad. And they're like, let's just get rid of this thing. So finally they get to chapter 6. And they're like, uh, in verse 8, let's just take the ark of the Lord the ark of the Lord, place it on a cart, put it on a box, put the figures of gold with it, and just send it out of here. I mean, just point that direction, and it's done, because we're having all these bad things. And it says in verse 11, they put the ark of God on there with the box, the golden images, and they put it on there, and they just send it on. And then it comes up to Abinadab's house in a cart. And so then, when David comes, Abinadab remembers, oh, it came on a cart. But the Philistines... The pagans had the idea of that. So here come Israel taking it, and they're looking to the pagans at, to get the idea on how to transport the presence of God rather than looking at God himself. That's where they got the idea, from the pagans. So what's going on here? Why would they do that? And what, what does that mean then for us? 
We don't look to the pagans to know how to bring in the presence of God into our church. We don't look at the outside world or, or anyone that doesn't know Christ on how to manifestly experience the, the presence of God in our own lives. They don't call the shots. So let's say it this way. Here's the third point. Pursuing the Lord's presence is not to be done on our terms or the world's terms. That's not up there, but you can add that, or the world's terms. Instead, pursuing the Lord's presence, having the presence of God come manifestly into our lives and experiencing God is to be done on his terms. We don't tell God how he fits into our lives. We don't tell God how we desire to have his presence in our life. We don't let the world determine that either. We don't get our ideas from them. Instead, we let the Lord tell us how he is to be known. Specifically and only, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Us only through Christ. And he's given us his word. He's told us that if you want to know his manifest presence, you want to experience, you want to experience God with me. It's here. I'm not saying you can't experience the the presence of the Lord in other ways. But the primary way of knowing God, he's already told us. And so if it's not in some way continually being cultivated with this particular book right here, then you're not doing it. And you don't get to decide. The Lord decides. And he's told us it's here. So what does that mean then for us? Well, let's look at what happens whenever they pursue the Lord in their own way. So I'll tell you what that means for us, by the way. Join us on the journey next year. That just means a simple word. We have a, a book back here on the info table where it tells you what to read, and then you write down some things, and then the next day, it tells you, it's, it's just a journey through the entire book, seeing the overarching meta-narrative, the overarching big story of the entire Bible. It, it's, right, it's all in one book. You, you, you get it, you read what it says, you write down some thoughts, and then if you do it the whole year, you've gone through the entire Bible. You get like five days off a month. Um, if you start right now, you get an extra 17. You can do, you get, I don't even know how many, that's a lot. You get a whole lot of extra breaks because we all know that we're going to accidentally miss sometimes, right? So join us in experiencing the presence of God in his word every day as we preach through the entire Bible next year and go through the journey. But let's notice what happens. So they get um, not very far. Uzzah dies, and this is what happens whenever you try to do things your way instead of God's. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is now called Perez Uzzah, or the bursting forth to this day. So the first response of David is angry. I'm angry that I can't do it my way. Don't mimic David. David's response is anger because he wants to call the shot about how the presence of God is to be brought in or pursued. Um, This should not be our response. Don't be angry that the Lord has designed the way to know him. Maybe it's not angry, but maybe it's the next. Look at verses 9 and 10. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can they are coming to the Lord? Perhaps you're just afraid. And this is what happens when he's afraid. Verse 10. So David was not willing then to bring the ark of the Lord into the city because he was afraid. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Perhaps the idea of pursuing the Lord, the way that he's designed, has made you apprehensive. I, I can't do that. I'm inconsistent. It's so obvious I'm inconsistent. Everybody knows that I'm inconsistent. So I'm just going to be apprehensive then. 
don't worry about the fact that you have been inconsistent your entire life. That doesn't warrant then just becoming apprehensive about pursuing it. I'll tell you this. If you never pursue God, you will stay right here. You'll always be right here. So it's okay that you're inconsistent. That shouldn't make you apprehensive to continually for your entire life pursue him. Look at verse 11. Here's another response. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. Three whole months go by and they don't get, they have it, it has been located, they were bringing it, it was coming, and all of a sudden it's not there. So for three whole months, the people of Israel are stagnant, having no presence of the Lord, but instead for three whole months it's over here and they get no presence of the Lord. Stagnation happens. So if you want to pursue God on your own way, it's not going to work. And if you don't um, pursue him the way he says, you're going to be stagnant. No presence, no blessing, just stagnation. Maybe this is something you've experienced. He's away. Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. And you want him back. Don't let it be somewhere else. But here's, here's the deal. God decides to treat Obed-Edom a little bit differently than he decides to treat those Philistine families. The Philistine families, tumors, plague, get it out of here, send it to Gath, send it to Ekron, just get it out of here. Um, well, Obed-Edom gets it, the Gittite, and, and it says <clears throat> in verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household because the presence of the Lord was in this man's house, just crops are going well, all kinds of, we don't know what it is, we can just make it up, like things are going awesome, right? Um, we know that there's blessing. And then it says in verse 12, that it was told to King David that the Lord is blessing the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of the Lord is there. David hears this and he's like, okay, you know what? Obed ain't getting all the blessings. I'm bringing it over here. We're going back and we're getting it. Now, this is going to sound interesting. Um, I think that the way this is phrased, you might say, that, that hits me the wrong way, Fudd. That can't be the way that you're going to, that can't be right. Let, let me say it, and I'll explain what I'm saying. Um, but here we see, David hears how the house of Obed-Edom is being blessed. And when he sees that, because of the presence of God there, the ark there, he sees the blessing and he says, I want that here now. So here's the fourth thing, the fourth note regarding practicing the presence. Let the blessing of others motivate you to pursue God for yourself to be blessed. You're hearing that and you might be thinking, well, that seems pretty selfishly motivated, wrong-minded, um, and I'm seeing how someone else is experiencing knowing God, experiencing God, having been loved by God, being forgiven by God, and all I really want then as I see that is I just want the results to be mine. I want that results to be mine. So I'm just selfishly, it's not because of God, it's just because I see the the, the, mo- the, the results from here, and I just want those results to be blessing into me. That's not what I mean. Okay, so that's not what I mean. There's a couple things I want to unpack on that. First is, um, I'm, I'm defining the idea of being blessed differently. I don't mean all of a sudden you're rich, or all of a sudden, you know, you're just awesome, and everybody thinks you're incredible, and you're the most popular person on earth. That's not what I mean. Instead, by blessing, by seeing that, I mean that you now understand, as they're being blessed by God, you understand the greatness of the gospel. And you see how they just revel 
in the glory of God and being forgiven by this great gospel, and you want to be able to revel in the gospel like that, you want to be able to know Christ, not these things, but Christ more deeply. You're seeing how the, it's blessing their life to be known by Christ and experience the great forgiveness, and you want to revel in that as well. I just want to know him and be blessed by him because I know him, he blesses me. Blessing doesn't mean material things per se, but instead it means I am blessed by being forgiven for God, being forever forgiven by God. I will be with him forever, and I get to know the creator of my soul. I get to know him, the person that made me. I get to know him more intimately and more deeply than ever. And so as I look around and see people that I know that are experiencing that, I'm saying, let that motivate you to also know Christ. So here's the difference then. So when they went over to Obed-Edom's, this is the great difference. They went over to Obed-Edom's and was like, you know what, Obed? We're taking this junk. It's ours now. They didn't say junk. They took it because it's God, right? So they took it over there. And all of a sudden, likely, the the blessing of Obed-Edom, done. And they get it. That's not how it works anymore. When we see the blessing that others are people by knowing Christ and being known by him, and we pursue him too. It's not like it cuts off for them, and all of a sudden we get it all. Like God's gonna, he's got short supply, and he can only give it to a certain people. He's infinite. He is of no ending. There's never going to be a moment where he's bankrupt. He never ever has to run out of resources and restock. There's never a moment where he has not sufficient reply, supply for everybody to continually, always, forever, to know new mercies every day, to be um, growing in their blessings of knowing and reveling in the greatness and seeing more of God, knowing more of God, and being given these blessings by him. So this motivation isn't taking away from anybody else like Obed. Instead, it's an abundance growing of blessing that everybody experiences. So pursue him and let let those close people in your life, family, friends, roommates, whoever it is, that you know are walking with Jesus more intimately, let those people be the people that God uses to motivate you to know him more intimately. And then, praise God, Maybe you can be used by God for somebody else then to be motivated. They see your life knowing Christ. Now, here's the greatest part. This is awesome. Verse 12. It was told to King David, the Lord had blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark. David went and he brought it up. Uh, He brought the ark of God to the house of Obed-Edom, to the city of David with rejoicing. Now, finally, no more carts. We're going to carry it with its poles the way that the Lord told us. And so you can imagine the scene. They go over to Obed. Uh, they, they had just experienced three months before the death of Uzzah. Seemed like a good guy. Everybody seemed to have liked him. Verse 13, it says, When those who bore the ark, those who were carrying the Lord, had gone six steps, he sacrificed. So here it is. The ark's over here. This, on this side of the stage is, is obviously, this is Obed-Edom's house. And over there is Jerusalem. And they get over there and like, okay, last time this didn't go well. Uzzah died. We're not doing the cart thing. We're going to do, we're going to do the pole thing, all right? So uh, let, let, let's, let's, let, okay, let's go. You imagine they're just scared to death, right? Last time, the dude died. So, all right, one, okay, that's, that's good. Everybody still alive? Mark, you okay? 
Yes. All right. Two. I, I want to stop. I want to put it down. I want to take a break. I want to take a break. No. Keep going. Three. Keep going. No, no, no. Four. We're going to keep going. Five. 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 Everybody, I'm done. I'm so, let's take a break. Let's take a break. All right. Worship service. Worship service. We went six steps. No one died. Let's, let's bring it out. Kill the ox. Kill the fatted calf. Worship service right now. Uh, let's take a break. You know what I mean? If you're going on a journey and you go six steps worship service, six steps worship service, six steps, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. I don't know if that's what it was, but if we're going on a journey, um, it seems to be that that's not the best pattern. But six steps, they were done. Like, no one died. Praise the Lord. We're doing it right. It's going to happen. So let's stop after just six steps. We didn't go very far. We didn't even get there yet. We're stopping before we even get there. Worship service. Kill the animals. Let's have a worship service. And then it says this. Obviously, the worship service is over. Verse 14 David danced before the Lord with all his might. That's what I think making Mary looks like physically. I think that's what movement of making Mary might look like. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel, here it is, brought up the the ark of the Lord on the poles, the way it's supposed to go, with shouting and the sound of the horn. The presence of God was coming into his people and their response was making merry, shouting, dancing, praising, worshiping, vibrant, physical movements. Like they were excited. It's not, I'm so excited, I'm pumped. Like they were pumped because the, the, the presence of God was coming into his people and they knew that that meant a marked change for them. So here's the, here's, I mean, worship is always the response to the presence of God. Matthew Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. As soon as the baby had been born, the Magi came bearing gifts. And what does it say? We have come because we want to give the gifts to the baby? No. We have come because we want to worship him and giving gifts. God with us, Emmanuel, always brings for us the right response of wanting to worship, make merry, dance mightily with all of our might. All of us shouting, worship. Here's the fifth one. We're talking about the presence. Having the presence of God, literally, God with us is great reason to worship. It's great reason because here's here's the best part. Now that we have Christ, it's not just God with us. It's God in us. He's not just beside me like in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's literally in me. That's the biggest game changer ever. That's the one that no one was expecting. So if they worshiped like this because God was with them, I think you know what I'm about to say. What should our worship be like because we have God in us? I think it it would be a lot of merriment. A lot of making merry, a lot of dancing before the Lord with shouting and singing. And so that's what we're going to do right now. He's worthy of our worship right now. Direct application gets to happen in 15 seconds, maybe 30. Right now, we're going to, we're going to sing and make merry and shout and worship. And if the Lord has wired you, dance before the Lord. Likely it's not, I know, but we're getting there. It's not, it's not against God's law. It has to be, I know, with order. All right, so I'm going to pray. And then we're going, to, we're going to, in response to this, because of the presence of God, worship.
So let's all stand, and Jordan will lead us in a time of worship. And we, I want you to do this. I want you to make merry with all your heart, with the appropriate response that we don't just have God with us, but we have God in us. And however he's wired you, I want you to worship him rightly because of that truth. Dear God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your presence with us. And like David, we want to make merry. We want to go after it, giving you all the glory and all the worship that you are due right now. Be with us as we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name.